What's going on, everyone? And welcome to the official podcast of the School of Hard Knocks. I'm James. I'm here with Jack and Josh. And for our first episode of our podcast, we've got a very special guest, Renji Bajoy. He's a tech startup founder out here in Austin, Texas. He's the founder and CEO of Immerse VR, which is the most used augmented reality and virtual reality app on the planet. But it wouldn't do it justice for me to explain him. So Renji, if you could give us a background on yourself and what got you into what you're doing now and what exactly you're doing. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, like you mentioned, Immersed is the most used app on the planet in AR, VR, mainly because it's virtual reality offices. People are working with the headset on 40, 50 hours a week, every week. It's not like a game where you put it on for 30 minutes and you put it down and then your headset collects dust. It's actually part of your, it's an extension of your laptop, right? So you take like a Quest Pro or a Quest 2 or whatever headset and it wirelessly connects to your laptop. It spawns five virtual screens. You have your whiteboards in there. You have your coworkers in there. You're quite literally in the virtual office as if you were in person with your remote team. But yeah, you're all just working from home. Uh, we also have a lot of users who work solo who are working in virtual cafes. So instead of like in the real world, taking your MacBook to um, a, a coffee shop, having to find Wi-Fi, find parking, found, find an outlet, pay for coffee, uh, and have to do that multiple different times if you want to change the scenery. Instead, just put a headset on. You have virtual cafes. You're not paying for coffee or anything like that, but you're around other people. The whole reason why people do this in the real world is because they just, you know, they feel isolated at home and it allows you to just be around real world people. But someone might be, this person might be in France. This person might be in, I don't know, like India or something like just random places around the world. And people are just sitting there getting their work done. So you're not necessarily collaborating. You're just around other people and you don't feel home alone. Right. Just from a, from a background standpoint, like I, it's funny because I'm actually not a VR person, which is usually surprising a lot of people. I don't play any VR games. I just use it for work. Um, and when I got into the VR space is because I wanted to build this specific product. So when I got into the VR space, it was, uh, before I ever even tried VR, I just, I bought a Google cardboard cause I heard about it and I was trying to build almost like a virtual computer screen type app. I wanted to have my laptop. I wanted to have multiple virtual screens. And that was my particular solo use case. I just wanted a, a way to bring my laptop with me anywhere that I went and still have five screens somehow. Um, cause you know, a background in coding, right? So maybe I could talk about that a little bit. So, um, I actually was pre-med in undergrad. I don't know if you guys knew that I was pre-med in undergrad, but then I did math and computer science for myself. So pre-med for my parents, math CS for myself. Um, and I took my MCATs. I did pretty well, got into med schools. Uh, I, the thing is though, I knew that if I were going to go to med school, I just wouldn't be happy. And so I ended up taking, and it sounds messed up. I know a lot of people wish they got into med schools, but I took my med school let acceptance letters and threw it in the trash. I was just like, I'm not going. <laughs> and my parents were super upset. Um, and I mean, if you think about stereotypically, uh, stereotypical Indian parents, they, you know, they want their kids to go be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. And to say you're going to be in it, it's like, it just, they think it means like customer support or something. And for me, it's like, no, I'm not like going to support the iPhone. I want to like build the iPhone. That's what I want to do. And they still didn't understand it, but, um, so I was like, okay, whatever, I'm just gonna do what I want to do. And I ended up then, uh, very quickly, once I got my first job as a coder, I didn't realize that by God's grace, my brain was wired for coding meaning like my, I guess, I guess I could see traces of it in my childhood. I played halo when I was 12, I was a halo pro gamer. So like I'd go to like local tournaments and it was so funny in every, uh, halo tournament that I was in the final score of every finals I was in was 25, zero. So like second place always got just like, like blown <laughs> out. So I stopped doing local tournaments and started uh, doing like online and uh, like, like uh, nationals and things like that. And uh, you know, I'd place like 30th, but still like 30 out of like 50,000. Right. So uh, when I was uh, 12, I could see, okay, I liked technology. I liked being very strategic. 
Uh, and then kind of as time had progressed, I didn't really know what I'd be passionate about. I did like wrestling in high school. I did um, bodybuilding in high school, things like that. And I just, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just, whatever I was doing, I wanted to be very, very good at it. Um, and I picked up basketball in undergrads for fun. And uh, yeah, I still play basketball now. And I, I noticed that everything I ever did, I really wanted to be very, very good at it. When I started my first job as a software engineer, I started realizing that, dang, like all these concepts that my teammates maybe took two or three or four years to uh, learn before I got here, I'm picking it up within a matter of a month, two months, three months. And for me, as time had progressed, I didn't want more money. I just wanted a promotion so I could do ha do more work, have more responsibility, lead a team, all of that. And every job I've, job I've ever had, every manager would tell me, hey, like we hired you for this particular small role. And I'm like, well, okay, well, that's boring. And so back then recruiters would just spam your LinkedIn inbox and they still do that today. But back then, now they rate limit it. Back then it was just like flooded with random recruiters saying, I can get you a mid-level here or senior level here, et cetera. So sounds terrible, but I had seven different jobs in two years, just promotion, promotion, promotion but like different companies. And by the time I was 23, I was a lead software architect um, for CNN for one of their sort of projects called greatbigstory.com. And uh, I mean, dude, I, I was 23 getting paid, like I think it was like 360K a year. Um, I was a lead ar architect and I felt like I hit somewhat of a ceiling in my career. Um, I felt very unsatisfied and I was like, man, all right, if this is all there is in the web world, well, I'm going to now move into AI stuff. So then I quit that job, focused on a PhD in computer vision, machine learning. So self-driving cars, autonomous drones, things like that. And, uh, I did that at Georgia tech for about two and a half years. By the time I realized this crap's going to take eight years, <laughs> I don't want to spend <laughs> eight years on this thing. And so, uh, about two and a half years in, I just. I was like, all right, I think I'm done. Uh, I settled for the master's degree, graduated from that and decided to not continue on with the PhD. Uh, and then that's when I started Immersed. So um, we applied to Y Combinator and Techstars, which are some of the world's top accelerator programs. We were finalists at both, um, but Y Combinator is very product focused. Techstars is very um, business focused. And I only had a coding background. I knew about building products, but I didn't know anything about legal, hiring, finance, fundraising, marketing, et cetera. And I was like, man, I think I just need to become a more well-rounded CEO. And so um, Techstars, that was kind of their pitch to me. And so I ended up, you know, packing my bags and moving to Chicago, uh, went to that particular program. They have some in like Austin and Seattle and New York and everywhere else. But um, sh the Chicago program is when I got accepted to. And uh, it was really cool because about 10,000 companies applied to that worldwide, only 10 got in. So we were, you know, one of the 10. So I guess what 0.1% of companies that applied that got in and What's funny was uh, the other people in the program were beasts. Like they were like either already uh, exited founders and or, or they went to like Harvard, Stanford, Princeton, Yale, whatever. So I was non-Ivy League, non-millionaire. <laughs> and like <laughs> I was in this program as just sort of this kid who like loved coding. And one thing that was unique was, well, number one, I was actually the only solo founder in that program. And they generally don't hire solo founders. Um, and for me, it was, I did have a co-founder previously, but by the time we got accepted into Techstars, he was like, dude, I don't know if I could leave Atlanta for us to, uh, that's where I went to grad school. So I don't know if I could leave Atlanta, leave my wife and kids and, and come to the program. And I can't even, I can't move all of them, uproot them and bring them to uh, Techstars. And honestly, maybe I shouldn't even be in a startup because I don't want to miss out on the more formative years of my kids' lives. And I was like, all right, well, I can't blame that. I can't blame you for that. Um, so I went through the Techstars program solo. And it was funny because all the different uh, founders would come to me and be like, man, like, like pat me on the back. Like, man, I have no idea how the crap you're doing this solo. I would kill myself. I, would be, I was like, thanks dude. Like, <laughs> not, I know it's already hard. You're just rubbing it in. Uh, so, so what I will say though, is Techstars was an insanely, especially that Chicago program, every program is different, but the Chicago program was like an insane boot camp, and I would never do it again. It was amazing for what it was, but I would never do it again. Um, because we were there from like 5am till 
um, probably 11 p.m., maybe midnight every single day uh, for them to indoctrinate us, indoctrinate us with their um, sort of way of building companies. And we had to figure out a way to run our company outside of that time, which is like, well, I got to sleep at least five hours and you could run your company on the weekends and things like that. And so it was just very difficult for us to run our companies. But that was very it was by design. It was only three months. And they're like, hey, for these three months before, you know, before the program started, they were like, uh, text all your family, family, and your friends that you apologize, but you won't be speaking to them for 12 weeks. I was like, what the crap did I sign up for? <laughs> and so, it, but it was extremely helpful because when I came out of it, it really did transform my ability to not just be a coder, but like really execute on the right product features that need to be built, um, learn how to communicate what I'm working on, uh, learn how to hire the right type of team, learn how to get funding, all those types of things you learned in those three months. And the part that's rough is not every accelerated program is like that. But that particular one is run by a guy named Logan LaHive. He was the founder of a company called Belly Card. Um, it's like a loyalty program for mom and pop shops. And you could use credits at the different stores, regardless of which one you went to. And you still get credit. Um, and uh, he got $40 million in funding from Andreessen Horowitz, the top VC in the world. And so he, when he exited that, he was running this Techstars program. And I lucked out. That was like the best managing director I could have had. Uh, he was very hard on us. But today, he's a great friend. <laughs> and back then, uh, I mean, all of us, all the, the 10 companies uh, and the founders of those companies, uh, are super thankful for his sort of leadership and guidance in that process. But yeah, I mean, fast forward to, um, yeah, the past six years is when we started Immerse, right? So six years ago, I went through Techstars. Um, the first three years were very rough. It was very um, focused on just heads down, build a product. Like, like initially it was a prototype when I was demoing it, it to VCs, but I needed to now start getting users. I can't just keep demoing to VCs and hope that that's going to give us millions in funding. It would give us like 300K. 350k something like that and when we started getting our first users okay well once we get to you know 20 daily active users or 100 daily active users like those were legit milestones we had to hit because we weren't on the oculus store and back then the oculus store only allowed games so they didn't allow us to be on, on the oculus Store. we were the first non-gaming app on the oculus store but they only unlocked that for us in uh august 2020 so three years into building this company so i had to go three years scraping the corners of the internet to find people who want to sideload this .apk file to their headset. Who the crap knows how to do that? And uh, eventually, once it was very clear that out of all the different um, virtual office apps out there, especially when COVID had hit, ours had the best user experience, uh, just the most amount of user usage and just the easiest onboarding experience. And it was just the most polished uh, and, the, and the best feature set. And so that's where uh, Facebook back then is what they were called uh, before you youngins, you know, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> they, they really... Uh, they, they, it was really cool because they brought, gave us a team of quality assurance engineers to like help us go through all the bugs, make sure it's polished before we get onto the store. And then once we got onto the store, it exploded. Um, and yeah, there's a whole other side story about the fundraising thing, but you know, we could talk about that as well if you'd like. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah what a, what a journey going through tech stars and everything. Uh, I have to ask like with, you know, you're the most used AR VR app in the world, mm -hmm. pretty much. Mm -hmm. Where do you see the, trend of adoption for just the everyday user to be able to use technology like yours. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the part that sucks is a lot of these headsets that are available today, people just perceive it as some sort of gaming toy thing, um, which is unfortunate for us for sure. <clears throat> so uh, for, for the past, I would say three years since we've been on the Oculus store, um, we've had to really position ourselves as a company that out of the, I don't know, I'll make it up, 20 million daily active users that exist in all the different Oculus headsets, HTC headsets, whatever. Um, out of the 20, 20 million around the world that exist, let's get as many of those as possible who have office jobs or desk jobs to use our app. 
And so we've had to sort of just look at that 20 million daily active users sort of number as our total addressable market. And even if only 10% of them use our product, well, that's still 2 million daily active users, right? Um, which is still pretty impressive for this thing on your head or this brick on your head. And we know that all of the tech giants are pouring billions of dollars, does like dozens of billions of dollars into this next generation of computing, spatial computing, right? Uh, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, uh, Google, all these sort of tech giants, whether or not they announce it or not yet. We do get to see a lot of the behind the scenes. So we know who is actually getting, uh, working on hardware. But for us, we know there's a lot that's coming out that's going to make it more mainstream. Uh, the question is, though, how long will that take, right? Will it be a year or five years? Candidly, I think that uh, if we can't do anything about it, <laughs> it'll be um, probably closer to four or five years before everyone has something like that. Um, but you know, we're having some conversations behind the scenes to see if there's a way to push that earlier to like a year from now. So you started building this company six years ago and back then, you know, or since that time, Oculus and all these headsets have become a lot more mainstream, but back yeah. then it was not nearly as popular. Yep. How did you get the idea to create immersed and where did this idea really originate? Yeah. I mean, it really came down to me trying to solve a problem for myself. So I will say I didn't look at VR as something I wanted to be part of. I looked at my problem of, well, I guess I'll start from the root. So back in 2017, when I first started this, I was just literally sitting down and brainstorming, okay, what sort of problems can I solve? And I remember listening to a, like a, a Y Combinator talk on YouTube or something talking about how if you're able to solve a problem for yourself, you're not going to have the problem of trying to guess what your users want, right? So say, for example, um, if you were, you know, you as a you know 25 year old or 22 year old, we're building some sort of insurance compliance something product. Well, you're gonna have to interview a ton of people in that world to know how to provide them a solution they want to pay for. But if you're building just a product that you want yourself, oh, you don't have to ask any questions. You're just, you're building the thing. And so for me, I knew that every software development team I'd ever been on or, or had led in the past, more and more people were starting to work from home, even though this is, you know, three years before COVID. Um, but especially in the coding world, I remember I had like a an aunt and uncle who like they both had work from home jobs and like my extended family was like, oh, that's so cool. How the heck can they do that? Because it was not, it was it was unheard of for uh, one person to even work from home, let alone two of them in the same household. And so the fact that in the technology world as a, as a coder, as a system admin or whatever it is, you could start doing that kind of from home because of things like GitHub and Slack and whatever else. And, and you know, back then Skype, um, there were ways that I could real, I, I could see that more and more people would start adopting this. So, you know, say maybe in 2014, I had like one coworker who uh, would work from home. And then 2015, I had like two coworkers. And then and then the next year, like three. So it, was, it, sh it showed me though, it was like a slow ramp up. It's eventually going to be a bigger and bigger problem in the future. If I can get ahead of this now, I'll be ready for when that thing hits. And little did I know, COVID would hit and the whole world would work from home, which was crazy. So I will say that like that was beyond my control, but I knew that this was an inevitable problem. And so... When I was thinking about, okay, well, if everyone's going to be working from home, the state of the art cannot be, this is me saying this in 2017, and this is true even back then, the state of the art of remote work cannot be video conferencing and chat. Like back, like today, that's kind of what we still do. And in 2017, it, it felt like, dude, we've been doing this for 20 years. Fast forward to say, okay, we've been doing it for 26 years now or whatever it is. Right. And so I knew that, like, I've heard about this thing called virtual reality. You can put on a headset and you feel like you're in another place. Maybe there's a world in which we can kind of like connect people who are remote into the same space. I never even tried it. So I just literally went to the internet and I Googled a Google cardboard. Like I was like, how do I, what's the cheapest headset I can get? It's like $20 piece of cardboard with two plastic lenses in it. You put your phone in it and now you're in <laughs> VR. Obviously it's not very ergonomic. It's a very crappy experience, but 
it helps me build the proof of concept. And when I put this blurry thing on, I was like, okay, I, I can envision this being a lot better. And then I heard about how Google has this thing called Daydream, which they wound down. And then Facebook acquired this company called Oculus, which I was already three years late to. Um, this, this, so the story of that is in 2012, Palmer Lucky founded Oculus. Two years later, he sold it to Facebook for two or $3 billion. And then 2014, 15, and 16, everyone and their mom wanted to create a VR app that can then ride that wave. And little did I know, I would enter the VR space 2017 after all these tech startups in the VR space failed. And so there's no VC money left for me because I came way too late. I, I, I came in the sort of trough of disillusionment. And so I knew though, at some point, this is gonna be a big problem. Let me just start working on this thing now. Um, and the more you focus on building a product for yourself, the easier it is to actually want to stay motivated and the easier it is to build a good product that other people who, hopefully you're not too like edge case of a person. Hopefully you're like semi-normal-ish, but you can't go wrong in thinking that uh, there might be at least one or two other people on the planet who are similar to you and have the same type of needs. Yeah. So, so a, a major problem that a lot of entrepreneurs face in today's world is finding that access to efficient funding, right? A lot of people talk about you don't want banks to lend you money because there's a big risk behind that. But what is your best advice to entrepreneurs who are trying to get access to the capital that can really fund their ideas and mm -hmm. to create really big companies? Yeah, I mean, I think that historically people would kind of just sort of point entrepreneurs towards venture capitalists or angel investors. The downside to that is a lot of angels and VCs they or not all, a lot of all of them are financially incentivized to take as big of a piece of the pie as possible. And the downside to that is like, like you as an entre entrepreneur have little to no leverage. You have no way to say, oh, well, no, I want you to have less of the company and me to have a little bit more. Like, okay, well, then I'm not investing. Peace, I'm out. And it's like, then you're screwed, right? So like one thing that has been invented that uh, has really unlocked a way to level the playing field for entrepreneurs is crowdfunding. You probably heard that before, right? Um, not like Kickstarter. That's more of like uh, paying for the like like pre-orders for the product. I'm talking about like an equity crowdfunding raise or like a community round is what they call it. So you can kind of get like not only your friends and family, but their friends and family and their friends and family and their friends and family in a scalable way where you're not having to like talk to each individual to pitch them and then hopefully they give you a check, right? So a lot, a lot of entrepreneurs historically used to do kind of just like a close friends and family round because um, if they had, if their family even had the money, which most families don't, but with crowdfunding, if you had a thousand people put in only a thousand bucks, it's a million dollars, right? Um, whereas historically people would have their friends and family put in like 50 or hundred K each and like, dude, that's a lot of risk for them. If you lose it, I mean, your family's gonna be super upset. Um, but if you go the crowdfunding route, okay, maybe they lost a thousand bucks, but you know, they'll live. But you do that with a thousand people and now you have access to a million dollars. And then you also call these VCs and angels say, hey, look, I just raised a million bucks in a day. Uh, I just post on social media, a ton of people joined it. And do you want to be part of this thing? And they have a ton of FOMO too, because they might think, oh crap, this person growth hacked the heck out of their round. They're going to be successful someday. I want to be part of this vision. So I would say like, especially in the pre-seed and seed stages, definitely look into crowdfunding. We went through WeFunder um, and it was extremely helpful because like for us, so uh, at the time, you know, by God's grace, we actually set the crowdfunding records back then. So in summer 2020, we raised 2 million bucks in two days. And then eight months, well, I guess four months after that, I was part of Forbes 30 under 30. And that brought more angel investor eyeballs onto our stuff. People would look on, look us up online and say, oh, you did a crowdfunding campaign or you can do another one. And I, I said at the time, like, I don't really know, but maybe I'll take your email and put you on a list just in case we do. And then that list hit like 300 people within like two or three days. And so a couple of months later, it was like March, 2021, 
I decided to open up a second crowdfunding campaign and that raised 8 million bucks in two weeks. And so, I mean, if you've ever done any VC or angel crowd, uh, normal fundraising, that usually that usually takes three to six months and you maybe get a million bucks out of it. But if you're able to, to almost like learn how to growth hack your crowdfunding campaigns, you could raise millions of dollars very, very quickly. It's not easy. It's not like a silver bullet. But if you're if you have an eye for growth hacking, which, you know, people like you guys do, um, that's something that you can actually pull off fairly easily because it's your gifting or your talent. Um, so all that to say, a lot of accelerator programs will kind of push you towards, um, yeah, going the typical VC angel route. But again, the downside is you have no leverage. So when you were raising, right, you said $8 million, you raised $8 million in two weeks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did that change the framework for Immerse VR? Like yeah. when you were seeing that money come in, what was the process like? And and how did that ultimately change your vision for the company? It was funny because on day one, <clears throat> we were trying to like close like seven and a half million in the first day. And like, we only, we only hit like 2.9 million in the first day. And like there are people on our team were like panicking, like, oh crap, what are we going to do? And I was like, all right, well, chill out. Like we have other things. You know, I've already a scenario planned. Like, you know, for me, I, I kind of operate like Dr. Strange where you kind of like do like a, a million different sort of scenarios and like, or I guess him is, is parallel universes. For me, like I think about different sort of scenarios we might be in. And I already thought about the case where, hey, we only raised 500K in a day. And it's like, we got to try to hit seven and a half million. And so what we ended up doing was, um, in day one. So we just kind of took the same approach as before, um, which was for me to get sort of this group of people that I used to call the growth squad back, you know, in the, in the, in the $2 million round, it was like 40 people. And these 40 people, they made up of about maybe like 200 K. So like 5k on average each. And the morning, the, the next morning when I post the crowdfunding campaign on social media, um, I'd have a video that would say things like, um, you know, hopefully by the time you watch this video, it's not too late for you to join. And you had 40 people comment saying, thanks so much. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. And you see all these people who are part of their own echo chambers of their friends. And then their friends are like, what the crap is that? What all of our friends that we know are like invested in this thing. What the heck is this? They look at it and they tell people about it and they invest. And then they, they tell people they invest and it just has this like chain reaction. And so we did that not only the first time we did the second time, but the second time uh, the reach was only like two X as effective because we didn't have just 40 people in our growth squad. We now had like 700 people in our growth squad from the first campaign. Anyways, after that first day, we're like, okay, well, it's going to slow down the next day. We might only hit like 4 million the next day. We had to then the follow, like kind of throughout the week, do things like giveaways, um, just create a lot of hype on social media, allow people like, you know, we're on the phones constantly, just like helping people figure out how to get their money in because people had like issues with their banks and crypto and need, they needed to sell and they didn't know how to use their wallet and random crap like that. We ultimately had to figure out ways to, um, honestly, we had to be creative on the spot. That was honestly a very uh, difficult season uh, or just a, t- a difficult two weeks. It Like I knew that it would be transformative for our company, which is why we put so much time and effort towards it. Um, and if we didn't do it, then I mean, what we had to go back to the traditional VC fundraising thing, which you know historically was just not effective for us because we weren't like some sort of like web or mobile app that you could like, spin up very, very quickly within the week, like a, a day or two. And then you have like a million users because you created a good version of that, which now we're 20 years into the web world or 30 years into that. And the fact that the chances that you're going to create the next Facebook web app, it's probably not as high as uh, you think it would be in today's world. So for us, we knew we need to be innovative. The downside to that is it doesn't have nearly as many users as people on web and mobile. And so, you know, I don't know if you remember like three or four or five years, people would say, oh, I have a cool app idea. Maybe people, people still say it today, but the phone is because is sort of just the last generation of technology. And as we move forward, people have to get creative of, okay, what should I build for the future and who the crap is going to believe in that? Because by virtue of this being something that's going to be effective in the future, it's not effective today. And so like, it's just hard to find people who, especially VCs and angels who will place their bets on you 
But I will say that plenty of random people on the internet will play a $100 bet or a $500 bet because it doesn't hurt them that much. But then you do that at scale and then eventually that gets you the funding you need to transform your company. Yeah, so at the stage of where you all are now, what would a funding round of $8 million or, or larger yeah. do for you all right now? Yeah. Like where would you kind of, yeah. if you're able to talk about it, like yeah, yeah, what, yeah, where yeah, would you yeah. kind of allocate those funds to? Yeah, so for us, especially because we're a very um, high tech company, we've had to really focus funds towards um, just hiring strong engineers, right? So not necessarily just like, you know, paying out the wazoo on freaking salaries, but so we definitely do weigh people heavily, their compensation on equity, not salary, because otherwise you're inviting or, or bringing in the wrong types of people who, you know, if you pay them 300K today, well, if Meta pays them 400K, well, they're gone. But if they believe in your vision and they care more about having equity in your company, that could be worth millions of dollars someday. And they want to build the next Meta or Facebook. Um, and, you know, their salary is less than what they could have gotten elsewhere. We know you attracted the right person. So a lot of the, the 8 million was allocated towards just growing the team. Um, and, and honestly, I don't think there's any, any bigger line item, uh, on our books than people's salaries. Like even the fact that we're extremely lean as a company, uh, you know, it's been two and a half years since that raise. Um, and so we have something else that we're going to announce later that, uh, kind of, um, is going to take our company even to the next level. But one thing that was cool was before we raised the $2 million round, we were like seven people. We raised a $2 million round. We doubled the team size. Then we went, we raised the $8 million round just a few months later. Uh, we then doubled again, or actually, I think we kind of tripled ish. Um, and so we kind of been, or maybe two and a half X ish. And so we've been kind of sitting there for a little while. We know that if we want to continue growing, um, we do have to grow the team. If we want to essentially remove roadblocks that are preventing us from getting the millions of daily active users that we want, we, 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 we don't want to wait for the tech giants to build the iPhone of glasses or whatever, right? Like we, it's going to be another four or five years until then. And so there are other ways that we can kind of accelerate that. That's what we're working on. So, yeah. and, and I was going to ask you, you have some of the biggest tech companies in the world that use your products, right? Yeah. Like TikTok, Meta. Yeah. What was the process like of coming in contact with those major tech giants? Yeah. And how were you able to close those deals with yeah. some of the biggest tech companies in the world? Uh, <laughs> I, you're probably going to hate this answer, but <laughs> it was just building the best product and they came to us. Wow. So like it wasn't, any sort of level of hustle or networking. We, we do have uh, direct and indirect competitors in the space who have tried to, to hustle their way towards those relationships. But the part that sucks is what I've come to find out behind the scenes is a lot of those key decision makers at those companies, like they just, they hate that individual who just like pestures them all the time, doesn't leave them alone. Um, as opposed to if you have the alternative of, oh, there's this app that you just genuinely love, like forget the founder, like forget me, forget Renji. They just love our product. It just makes it easier to build a relationship there. Um, and so I'm not going to say that you need to just build a great product and they will come. Like you, you do need to make sure that you do a great job of like growth hacking on social so they hear about you. Um, and then like it spreads by word of mouth. But I will say that um, even if you get all the other things right in your company, whether it be your books or your team or funding or your partnerships or whatever, if you don't get the product right, none of those other things will save you. <laughs> and so it's just so important to make sure that when building partnerships, you have a strong product to back you up. Is that what you would say is probably the biggest challenge that startup founders face today or is yeah. just building a good product? Yeah. I mean, you've probably heard this term of product market fit, right? So like you probably heard this analogy a million times where uh, building a product or, build, or finding product market fit um, is like pushing a boulder up a hill. And once you crest the peak, you're like chasing it down the other side. That's how you know you have product market fit. Um, meaning like, you're just like your users, ha like they're using your product so much and money is pouring into your bank so fast to the point where like 
you just can't support all those users and you need to now go get another influx of capital from a VC to be able to then support that growth. That's how you know you have product market fit. And even today, we don't have that. We have a good product. We don't have product market fit because I think our biggest blocker is the hardware, right? Until everyone here has a pair of glasses or a headset or something, um, we just are not going to have that insane, insane growth. So, What do you think it's going to take for that to become mainstream and everyone to have that, you know, the product, everyone's wearing the glasses, some mm-hmm. the Oculus, stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the tech giants have to prioritize common use cases. Gaming is great for most kids, sure. But I mean, if the vast majority of people who have money are not kids and they're adults who have jobs, you probably need to create use cases for them if you want to sell more units, uh, more headsets. And so something like the iPhone, like, like let's make the comparison of like uh, uh, these two devices that both fit in your hand, right? You have a Game Boy and you have an iPhone. Game Boys are great for kids, but iPhones are practical for adults and kids. What do you think is going to make way more sales? The iPhone, clearly, right? But the Game, form, the, the game Boy was a great form factor. It's a great test bed for technological innovation. They had a high user count, sure, but was it ubiquitous like the iPhone? No. Now the iPhone, the iPhone set the precedence for a device that can hit billions of users. Um, I think they have two billion iPhones out there now, uh, and I think like three billion Android devices out there, which is insane. Uh, so all that to say, like, I think that for us to make sure that um, we're going to be a ubiquitous application, we have to do what we can behind the scenes to work alongside these tech giants to get them to prioritize the applications that are the most compelling. Um, so for example, you probably saw the Apple Vision Pro get announced, right? Which is not really a VR headset. It's more what they call a spatial computer. It's more of like a MacBook on your face that kind of does uh, 3D spatial computing. Um, that we really believe is what's gonna, and, and Apple's smart. They, they, they do a great job of creating the right products that people want for the future long-term, right? Um, and so this spatial computer that they created is their next Mac OS. Whereas with Facebook, they're more so just creating kind of like a, more of like a PlayStation 5 or an Xbox on your face. And so the total addressable market for PlayStation versus MacBooks and PCs and Linux computers, I mean, it's not even close. I'm curious, like, mm-hmm. right recently, you've seen all like the major office buildings like downtown mm-hmm. losing a ton of members and yeah. just employees. Do you feel like AR, VR is going to replace the common company like workspace and just workplace in general yeah i mean i think that that's um i think it gives people optionality i'll say that some people like if you remember when covid hit and there was this sort of shelter in place rule where everyone had to stay at home like you couldn't even go to the grocery store for example like people started missing going back to classes going back to the office like people started missing being around people and yeah, I think at the end of the day, some people enjoy being in the office because you can be more productive uh, and, and leaving home at home and leaving work at work. Other people just like the convenience of just kind of being able to work here and there throughout the day. So at least AR VR gives you optionality. And so that's why it's important for AR VR apps, specifically ours, for example, for virtual offices to not just be overfitted to solving the at home problem, but also, okay, well, what if you and I have a pair of glasses and but we're both in person? What does that look like? And what if he's at home? So how do we all three have the same experience? And we call that paradigm co-location, right? So it's going to be a freaking exciting world that we're going to be living in in the future. But eventually we might have someone else sitting right here who's not actually here, but the rest of us are. And it just feels like the same uniform experience. Wow. Yeah. So being being a startup founder, especially in a place like Austin, Texas, you probably uh, run, run in with some pretty big CEOs, people that run mm-hmm. large tech companies. Who would you say are some mentors that have helped you along your journey as yeah. a tech founder? 
that you're currently working with or and they're just helping you guide along your journey to grow your company? Yeah, the most recent one I would say is the the Intel CEO, Pat Gelsinger. He's been um, extremely generous with this time. Uh, he's running a $200 billion company. Um, our company is worth, I mean, like a thousandth of that. And so like the fact that he's willing to give me the time of day, it's actually quite literally not worth his time, uh, like not even a couple of seconds. Um, and the fact that he cares to be responsive, to, to help us, I, I think the only incentive uh, he has from a just pure material standpoint is uh, the fact that, yes, we're working on the next generation of computing and Intel makes chips for computers. So there is a little bit of relevance. Um, but at the same time, there are other CEOs, other tech giants that are even more directly relevant that won't even give me the time of day at all. And so I will say that uh, the CEO of Intel, Pat Gelsinger, um, is a very high character person, and that's very rare to find. Um, and I truly believe that people like that are the ones who win in the end. Because at the end of the day, like if your relationships on average are very consumeristic and very selfish, uh, where you are a person who's selfish yourself and the friends you make are selfish people and only care about themselves, I just don't think that great outcomes are built by individuals who care about themselves, but rather teams that um, elevate each other. And so with Intel, though in today's world, you know, you have other companies like NVIDIA and Qualcomm and AMD and others who are doing very, very well. Those companies outsource all of their like, like very, very foundational technologies to places in Taiwan and China, et cetera. But they don't realize that they're shooting themselves in the foot over the course of time because eventually those companies can, can manipulate them saying, hey, we just feel like increasing our prices. What's NVIDIA going to do? They can't really do anything. Whereas Intel, they build their product from the ground up. They are the chip manufacturer. They are the fabrication facility. Um, whereas these others, they just, because it's cheaper to make it in China, they'll just make it there. And it's their core IP, their software. But Intel, they do everything from the ground up, based in the US, et cetera. So I'm really excited about Intel as a company. That's awesome. Yeah, I saw that Intel, not this past year, but for like the past like decade or so, was like the number one patents for any company. Yeah in the US, which I thought was pretty. Yeah, and like they they are doing a ton to try to help the US economy, which I really appreciate. Meaning, no offense but uh, to NVIDIA or Qualcomm and the others, but like they kind of just care about their bottom line for their own company today. Like how much does it cost to make our product and how much uh, margin do we make on it? That's all they really care about. Because yes, they're public companies and they have to like answer to their uh, investors and they every quarter they have to, um, you know, beat their earnings of the previous quarter or previous year's quarter. And with Intel, they're like, hey, our mission and our vision is to help the U.S. economy. And so sh sure, we might take some short-term L's, but we do want to make sure that we're setting ourselves up for success for decades to come, not just this quarter. Uh, and that's where you have guys like Elon as well. Elon does the same thing. And Elon and Pat Gelsinger, the Intel CEO, are both very similar in that way, where they want to own the whole process. And it is generally U.S.-based. And the main reason why they go to other countries and work with other countries is to win those markets over as well, not to just fix their bottom line. And what would you say is the best piece of advice that you received from the Intel CEO? Like if there's one lesson that he taught you that has kind of stuck with you ever since you met him, what's the best advice that you received from Pat? Uh, my biggest job is going to be to surround myself with impressive leaders. So I'm no longer just building the product. I'm building the leadership team that's going to build the product. Um, and so, I mean, that's, that's a hard thing. I think I've done a good job with who I have thus far. Um, we still have gaps as a company. And so... Uh, a, a lot of my time is going to be spent towards recruiting. It's going to be spent towards, uh, like like most people who are really, really good at what they do, they're not searching for a job right now. So you have to kind of poach them. And so like, I'm going to be spending probably about 40% of my time just wooing other like department uh, head of growth from here or 
um, the the head of sales here, whatever it is, and really try to pursue these people to help build our team. How do you see artificial intelligence merging into the into the AR VR world? And it's probably there's already developments yeah. there. I would love to find out like where's that space at currently, and where do you see that kind of collaboration in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think a very easy way to think uh, through this sort of step by step is. In today's world, a lot of the AI tools that we see and hear about that have actual practical uses are things like ChatGPT, right? Where you just like, you type in something, it can answer kind of anything because it's trained on the internet, right? So it's trained on human language and just the way that all these words on the internet flow together. And now it has sort of like a, a mental map of how humans coexist and interact. And the downside to ChatGPT is it's only text-based. So you're not like, it doesn't see anything. It doesn't like, it doesn't go and do anything. It's just like, all it can really do is just like listen and then respond. And so I think that's kind of where AR VR is very, very important because it's not just things that um, you can read and write, but now it's also things that you can see, hear, and, and I mean, interpret. There's just a lot of different things that you can do with AR VR that you can then feed into something like a chat GPT. Um, and so chat GPT is what they call a, an LLM or a large language model. But what I'm talking about is almost like a multimodal large language model, which means not just text, but also video and audio. Uh, and so if you have almost like a headset on and you have an AI that sees everything that you see, it hears everything that you hear, it interacts, it, it knows everything you interact with and it's able to interpret all that with the English language like ChatGPT. Well, now you just have uh, essentially just like a, an angel on your shoulder that just like, you know, like- It's, it's yeah. almost like Jarvis from it's like Iron Jarvis. Man. Exactly. Jarvis. Yeah. yeah. And, and so yeah. that's kind of what you'll start seeing a lot more of. The hard part is who's going to figure out how to get people to wear that device all the time. I think that's kind of what Google Glass was trying to do, but they have just terrible, terrible execution. Um, and AI wasn't nearly as advanced back then as it is now, but the, the the convergence of a lot of these things, people are starting to realize a lot of this. And um, a third category <laughs> that is actually pretty uh, funny because we've only seen this in movies, but a third category that's starting to emerge is uh, humanoid bipedal robots, human-shaped robots. Um, like the Tesla bot, if you ever heard of that, or another company called the figure, uh, who just raised 70 million bucks. Um, and so they're create, they're legit creating robots that are like us, but not like, cause it looks cool, but rather because they can, um, replace human labor, which is insane. And the way that that bridges with AR, VR and AI is, well, number one, the way that this robot's going to operate, it needs AI to be able to operate. But number two, the way in which these humanoid robots are going to be able to know how to interact with the world is to simulate what humans do. And the way that you can do that is with AR VR, right? You can see everything the person sees, you see everything their hands are interacting with. And so eventually you take all that data, you feed it into a neural network, you put those neural networks in these robots, <laughs> you know, you have a freaking Terminator. So, yeah. Do, do you feel like there's a, a certain aspect like Google Glass, or maybe it was too ahead of its time? Like I used to, growing up, I used to play, uh, you know, a lot of games mm -hmm. and uh, there was the Sony PSP. And I thought that was like revolutionary. Mm -hmm. You know, it could surf the internet. It, it was, was really good. It was really good. The display was amazing too. Yeah. It was crystal clear. It was fantastic, yeah, you yeah. know, and I feel like it never got the love it deserved. But, yeah. and I feel like now that's kind of just turned into like the modern day, you know. Do you remember the price of it? I don't. It was 600 bucks. Ah, that okay. Was, I think, I think that was the biggest problem. The Game Boy, I think it was like 99 when it was selling like crazy. I think you can get one for like 129, 149 and 199. But I think the most... Um, I think like the Game Boy Color and like the ones that pretty much everyone got, I think it was $99. I might be wrong. I have to Google this. Um, yeah, maybe Tim could fact check, fact check me. But uh, I remember the PSP when it first came out was 
$600. And then because it sold out like crazy, uh, eBay, you can get it on eBay for $800 or $1,200. And I remember just like weeping to my dad, dad, I need this thing. We're sold out. <laughs> and my dad's like the most I'll pay is 800. I was like, Oh, thank God. And he said, he, or actually, you know what? He didn't even pay the 800. I sold my Xbox or sorry, my GameCube to get the PSP. And so that maybe I got like 250 bucks out of it. And my dad paid the other 550. So like, I mean, I think that was the biggest issue with the, the, the reason why I didn't get as much love is because people can't get into their hands. And man, when you, do you remember feeling the feel of it? It, it, was, felt, it felt, great. felt so great. It, it was the analog stick. It was lightweight. Yeah. It felt firm. Yeah. And it was crystal clear. It was such a good device. So I'm wondering like, like that, that product, in my opinion, died way too early. Obviously yeah. it had its own problems that yeah. maybe we don't truly understand like the behind the scenes of it. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like Google Glass and, and the PSP, like, do you feel like there's certain aspects of just tech and innovation in general where it's just sometimes you launch your product and it's just it's too ahead of its time right now yeah um i think so i think the <laughs> i think google glass and psp they had two different problems so with google glass i don't even think it was a bit ahead of its time i just think it just wasn't functional it wasn't useful right like you had it, it wasn't even like a display that you had it was like a, a a small little square prism maybe like 128 pixels by 128 pixels or something and maybe maybe it's 300 something i don't know but it was relatively useless, unfortunately. And it had a camera on it that made, especially back then where people weren't filming all the time with their phones using TikTok for Insta, uh, Instagram reels or what YouTube shorts, whatever. Um, back then, I mean, it was kind of embarrassing if someone like held their phone up and was recording something, uh, if you remember that. So with the Google Glass, the fact that it had a camera, it just wasn't socially acceptable. It was useless. It was just a flop. No offense to Google if you're watching this. Um, but when it comes to the PSP, I don't think it was too ahead of its time except for you're right on the back end in regards to manufacturing supply chain, like to build a product that nice and that high quality, it costed so much more back then. Today, something like the PSP, like I don't know what the different, like the latest like Nintendo DSs or whatever look like now, uh, Nintendo Switch or whatever it is, I said DS, uh, <laughs> Nintendo Switch or whatever is available today. Like I'm sure that technology is like insanely advanced compared to the PSP, but uh, also another important factor is the cost to develop that thing has been brought down tremendously. So if you can get one of those things for 99 bucks now versus a $600 thing, like when people think $600, they think, okay, iPhone SE, or they think that like a really important product. When it comes to gaming though, you have to be a gamer to really want to spend that type of money. So I think that when it comes to technology, man, there's so many things that you have to get right. Um, the market doesn't owe you a win. The market doesn't owe you to, for you to become a billionaire. Um, it doesn't, yeah, it's just not, um, building products is not something that is, is supposed to be easy. Like, like out of all the people on planet earth, how many Elon Musk's, Mark Zuckerberg's and Steve jobs do we have like three, three, right? Hmm. When it comes to the fact that you have so many startups out there, well, 96% of them fail. Three of them barely survive 1% or like 0.9% does like, okay. And then like 0.1% is like Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg or whatever. Hopefully that answers your question, but. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think like on that topic of product market fit, I think uh, when Meta decided to make the change from Facebook to Meta yeah. and a lot of their user base, uh, you know, they're not adopting into VR right away. Oh, uh, you know, if you're able to talk about it, like what do you see were kind of some of the challenges with their transition to Meta and just maybe their initial yeah. testing, trying to get people using their stuff? Like what was that kind of initial switch for them? Because yeah. I need to work closely with, with Meta. Yeah, I think the, the hard part for them was figuring out a way to make the Metaverse a compelling vision. Um, I mean, you probably saw the viral image of like Mark Zuckerberg as like an avatar that looks like kind of creepy with like the Eiffel Tower behind him. Oh, yeah. Uh, and yeah. I, was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, 
like like <laughs> this sucks but like that was the moment that and by the way at the time we didn't realize it was this big of a deal but that was the moment that ruined this concept of the metaverse the metaverse um at the time we didn't realize it. we were like oh it's a funny meme whatever and like you know all of our friends made fun of it, whatever but now when we think metaverse we think that it's like all right dude like that man that it's crazy because if you think about the material uh damage that that did we're literally talking hundreds of billions of dollars worth of money lost because of that one post that one moment which is crazy to think about how one little thing it's insane and how that can ruin everything and so even companies like apple have to take that in consideration when they're releasing their vision pro they're like okay for this keynote what what do we want this thing to look like and they need it so i don't know if you realize this not once did they use the word metaverse or virtual reality in that entire uh two-hour keynote or i'm sure they didn't uh, mention at all in any of the developer um videos after that and so because they want to shift your mind away from this 3d immersive metaverse internet thing to hey no let's just like take people one step further into ar vr VR, which is just your computer but spatial that's it and so with meta i mean i think that that was what went wrong um and the thing is like facebook and the founders of that company not only zuck but everyone else around him have done a great job in creating a social network which is why their vision of ar vr is more social and and more relational Whereas Apple has always taken a products, tools type or utility type mentality to everything. This is something that you would use. And so when it comes to their AR VR headset, they're more so, okay, what tools can we give you so you can be productive? So very different approaches to begin with. Um, so when it comes to AR VR, it's, it's a general category, but that's kind of like a- AR VR is more equivalent to saying, oh, like my phone has a computer in it. My computer has a computer in it. Like these cameras have computers in them. Okay, well, AR VR is kind of just saying, 3d spatial anything and so to think about okay what does the future of ar vr look like it just depends on your use case with meta it's more relational with apple it's more tools based and you had brought up earlier um a big part in scaling your company has to do with expanding your team Mm -hmm. i wanted to get your thoughts for a young kid who's he's a hustler he's really looking to break into the tech industry Mm -hmm. what would you say are the top two or three skills like it'd be soft skills or hard skills that are really needed to succeed in the industry you know as someone you're focusing a lot on recruiting now yeah what are those things that you look for in someone that tells you i need to bring them onto my team yeah i mean this is this is tough because um part of it is is like it's almost like a systemic issue for our society like i wish that everyone in the u.s not only learned how to read and write and do math but also learn how to code and you don't have to be the best coder in the world. It's just if it's like a staple, like a tool that like just like how you can at least do multiplication, that you at least know how to like write simple programs to automate the boring parts or the, of your life, the, the monotonous little tasks so that you can then be freed up to go do the stuff you actually enjoy. And this is funny, like I was actually on a ranch with some um, uh, like Tim Tebow and like 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 you know, so, so some uh, politicians and stuff. And they were talking about how uh, in China they graduate every year the same number or more than the number of engineers uh, that exist in the US. So in general, if we have say 5 million engineers in the US, well, China graduates that many per year. And so oh it's, it crushes us. And, you know, they're talking about how China is not, uh, you know, they're not far behind on the space race. Really just Elon Musk is the reason why US is doing so well there. Um, but when it comes to some of these other areas, they're just crushing us in manufacturing and everything else. And, they were saying, I mean, at the end of the day, it's it, the, the core fundamental issue here is they have such an emphasis on those things, like not just China, but also, you know, like 
Romania and Ukraine and Russia and those places before all the war stuff. Like they just had a very hard focus on the hard sciences as opposed to like the liberal arts or the social sciences, right? And so um, I think something that I really look for in a lot of hires is some level of capacity to comprehend um, technological process or discrete logical thinking, if that makes sense, right? So meaning um, when you follow a very discrete way of going through logic, it's almost as if wherever you start, the end goal is always the same. The fact that people have arguments is just a result of miscommunication, right? And it's because one person has a certain way of thinking that actually is like not discreetly mathematically logical. And so they just have arguments and miscommunication, whatever. I think that if our, our country cared more about the hard sciences and specifically also one practical thing is just add more coding to curriculum, which I'm starting to see more of, which I'm super excited about, but it's going to take a generation to find out what that even looks like. Um, if you're an entrepreneur today who hasn't had that type of training or, or, or education in elementary school, middle school, high school, whatever, um, go online and start learning some of this stuff just to get familiar with it. And even if you don't become a beastly Elon Musk coder, um, at least you'll have an understanding of how to communicate with other people who are so you can then build the team to go do whatever, because you might be the salesperson of your team or the marketer of your team, but you're not the coder of your team. And that's fine. It's just, if they're speaking a different language from you, I mean, you're just not going to head in the same direction and likely you'll part ways, which is actually the number one reason why startups fail is uh, founder breakups. So, wow. I'm sure like your coding background has been able to help with that, being able to communicate with developers and stuff. Yeah. It's interesting. You brought up the China thing because mm -hmm. with the recent uh, hearing with Congress with the TikTok CEO going before the board, yeah. one of the biggest problems with they were saying is that China shows their kids a different yeah. feed on TikTok yeah. than what we get STEM. Yeah. So they actually recently just added the STEM feed yeah. to TikTok. Yeah. I don't know if anybody uses it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I got it like, uh, like literally the week after that congressional hearing, I got the STEM channel and then no one else in my office got it. So the thing is that week, the week after the congressional hearing, I was actually at uh, TikTok USA, their HQ. So I was like, was I on their Wi-Fi or something? I got down to my, <laughs> yeah. my, my phone, but like I had it before everyone else. And I was looking at this. I was like, this is freaking awesome. I'm learning so much. It's actually such a good tool. Yeah. It's such a good tool. And so, man, I just, I, I wish that, um, yeah, like that had been something that they, it makes sense that it's a positioning thing, right? Like TikTok, obviously they're the founders are Chinese and like the vast majority of the company, like when I was at TikTok USA, like the HQ here, like pretty much everyone on campus was Chinese. And like, wow. I was like, I, I did not expect that. I expected just like, oh, it's like maybe they hired a bunch of American people. I don't know, I guess to maybe market to more of the US demographic, but like, no, everyone like, like 90% of people, there were Chinese, but I was like, oh, wow, it's like little China here, which is really crazy. Um, I think that, uh, man, had the U S been more proactive about that, like at the beginning of COVID, for example, our world could probably look and probably would look very different today in the U S man. It's crazy. Yeah. If you were to start your company immersed back on day one again mm -hmm. with what you know now, mm -hmm. what's the number one thing you would do differently? I would be more careful about who I allowed to invest in the company because I definitely had a lot of, um, I guess, um, landmines that I had. I just didn't know were there in the angel VC side of things. Uh, but then sort of the, the silver lining was in during that process, I did meet one VC called Sovereign's Capital. It's actually a Christian VC firm. They're freaking awesome. And I love them to date. They're the only VC in the world that like I will go seek out to make sure any company I build, I want them to be on my cap table. Um, so I will say, just make sure that, um, you 
not only need the money when you're fundraising, but also the money that you're uh, getting is coming from people who you really do uh, trust and people you could at least um, people, you know, that are going to lift you up rather than sort of tear you down. Um, So I would do that, that definitely very, very differently. Um, And then also I would um, require more proof from people who pitch stuff to me, if that makes sense. Meaning I didn't realize I was as trusting as a, uh, of a person, especially back then as I am now, or I'm not as much trust as trusting now, like meaning. So back then, if you pitched me the idea of like, Oh, Hey dude, like I want to be this C level person at your company and I'm going to do X, Y, Z, whatever for me, like, I'd be like, I should be cautiously, cautiously optimistic. Like, Oh yeah, that'd be great if you did that. But instead back then I used to be like, Oh, you're going to do that. Holy crap. Okay, cool. Here's this much equity. Or if you're going to do that, okay, here, here's this much money. If they're like an external partner or something. Um, but rather like looking at the track record resume wise or looking at the portfolio if they're an external partner wise, right? Um, or just really doing more due diligence on who we work with. Um, because if we if you have if, if, if there's such a high bar to hit product market fit, well, obviously your partners and the people that you work with, they need to meet that high bar too, so. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, you had mentioned Christian VC firm. When we first met, it was at South by Southwest, Sunday SVC. Uh, could you just talk about how your faith has played a role in you as a startup founder, mm-hmm. you know, in the in the tech world, as well as just an entrepreneur, what that's done for you? Yeah, I will say that um, I think that Christians in the tech world who aren't, who don't get ahead of the problem of being a Christian in the tech world, meaning the tech world in general, they're, they're not fans of, they're not naturally fans of Christians just because of the way that Christians don't represent God the way that they should. Because um, Christians are fallible too. And then now the world points at you as a hypocrite. But if you're not repentant and if you're not, um, you know, remorseful for the mistakes that you make, well, then now we're just having arguments or fighting back and forth and pointing fingers at each other. And thus now you have all this drama between the tech world and the Christian world. For me, the fact that from the very beginning, I was very open about my faith actually just makes it very easy for me to operate in every context now. Meaning uh, I have other friends who are Christians that I know that they're Christians behind doors, but then in public, no one knows that they're Christian. And it's hard for the first time for them to even like let people know because then people would be so surprised because now they kind of just see you differently. Whereas for me, they already had that sort of lens on me to begin with anyway. And if anything, they're just, they already had a low bar for what they thought of me to begin with. And everything that I do in regards to high character, whatever, I'm only getting points. Whereas for you, if you were a person who hit it the whole time and they had this high bar for you of like, oh, you're not a Christian, you're great or whatever it is. Right. And then you become a Christian and then you tell them you're a Christian, like, wait, then why did you do this and this and this and this and this? And all that to say, like, it just causes so many problems if you hide your faith in the tech world. Uh, and oftentimes this almost seems counterintuitive. And this is why most Christians don't share it openly in the tech world is they don't realize it's counterintuitive. They don't realize that, um, oh, actually hiding it is going to cause more problems for you than if you were to just be open about it. Meaning um, if you hire the wrong people who, if they found out you're a Christian, they'd be super upset that their, their, their CEO or founder is a Christian and they would end up quitting or causing drama or whatever. Had they just known that on the front end, they probably wouldn't have applied in the first place. And then you don't have to, you don't have the problem. Right. Um, or, um, when it comes to the types of VCs or, uh, the types of things that you say and do later on for me, it's on like my LinkedIn profile. Right. And so like you could just find it very quickly. Um, and what I will say is some people, they have an agenda no matter what, and they still want to work with me no matter what. And so at least they have that caveat. Oh, Randy's a Christian. That's why he operates this sort of way. And they end up already getting ahead of being okay with it rather than us having to have some sort of hard heart to heart later as to why I should be a Christian to begin with. 
right? Because I didn't share about it previously. So um, I will say that like, honestly, just logistically, like if you're a Christian, you should just be very open and honest about it from the very beginning. Don't just like hide it and because it's only going to cause problems for you. Um, like from a practical standpoint and then from a faith standpoint, I mean, infinitely worse between you and the Lord because he's like, if you deny me around people, you know, like I'm going to deny you before my father. Right. So, um, well that's between you and God. So I'll let you figure that out. Uh, when it comes to like the advantages of being a Christian, I mean, it's, it's crazy, dude. Like, like the Lord wrote this, this game called life. Like he's the one who created it. And if you want to know how to win the game, I mean, you probably want to go to the person who created it and like learn how you probably heard this analogy a million times, but like the manual, like he has the manual for that. Right. Um, and like, I think that when, uh, people try to operate as founders without having any sort of, whether it be moral compass or, or, um, a deep rooted faith, I mean, they, as well as anyone else have no idea what the crap they're doing and neither do I, but at least I have something that I'm rooted in and the Lord created, um, essentially faith in us to begin with for the sake of us being able to operate life effectively and be in relationship with him forever and eternity. Right. And so when you think about, okay, what does that mean for me on a day-to-day basis? Well, for me personally, my personal conviction is I just don't use profanity. And the way that that manifested in the tech world is pretty much every VC uh, meeting I've been in, they will use whatever profane language they want to, whatever. But for me, when I started immersed, I was 24. And had they known that I was 24, they probably wouldn't have given me money. And because, you know, they don't want candidly, they're like, okay, well, if I give my, my millions of dollars to this kid, will they do the right thing with that money? They just assumed I was like 35 because I didn't curse. So <laughs> I wouldn't tell them I was 24, but they just assumed because I was more mature and, or I was more, uh, I, t- I was more in control of my tongue or, or more in control of my character and the way I carried myself. They just assumed I was in my mid thirties, but I was 24 at the time. So that wasn't the point of me not cursing. It, just, it was my own personal conviction. Little did I know that that would be the result of that. Another example would be um, building trust and rapport with your team, for example, right? People who I had interviewed in the past, um, candidates who wanted to potentially join the company, multiple times people would say, dude, I don't know what it is, but like between you and this other startup that I'm interviewing with, like I trust you way more. Like this person, they're just going to do whatever is best for them, like survival of the fittest, whatever. They're going to be selfish. But you, like I know that you care about people and I just trust you. Even if I, even if I don't believe in whatever you believe in, I just trust you. And so what that does is, it builds stronger bonds between you and your team and people don't just assume the worst about you. They give you the benefit of the doubt more. It honestly, it just, I think it's easier to operate in life as a Christian more than it is to be an unbeliever. And simultaneously, because startups are so freaking hard, like I just don't know how people build companies without God because it sucks. It's difficult. Like Elon Musk says, it's like chewing glass and staring into the abyss. You've heard that yep, a million times. Yep, yeah, <laughs> for sure. No, hundred percent. I agree with that. Like it's, it, he's not lying when he says that, but when it takes the clip, roll yeah. the clip. <laughs> we have that one on standby. Yeah. <laughs> what, but, what? But, but seriously though, yeah. like as, as a founder, you have no one to, to look up to besides mentors for instruction or, or guidance. So yep. who, like it's, it's on you at the end of the day. You yeah. Know? And yeah. No, no one's going to do the work for you. Exactly. No one's going to tell you how to do it or what to do. Yeah. It's, it's all on you as the founder. Which yeah. I feel is- yeah. And I think that's why it's important to be a believer, at least for me. Right. Like meaning, um, because no matter what, you're not going to get everything right. There's no question about that. But I think that if you were a person who follows God in this process, um, he's the one who takes care of you no matter what, it actually allows you to take bigger leaps off the edge of this, uh, Canyon and you know, he's going to catch you. So it actually allows you to be a little bit more YOLO than if you didn't know if you're going to hit the bottom or not. 
right? So if you're an unbeliever who just like doesn't believe in God and like when we die, we're in the ground, you're not gonna take nearly as many risks. You're not gonna be nearly as reckless as I'm call it reckless. But like for me, I call it faith. I can jump further deep into this Canyon because I know that I'm going to be caught. Like it's literally like in the, the lowest of lows. Uh, I just need to like not cry right now in the lowest of lows of building companies. There are times in my mind where the Holy spirit reminds me, what are you worried about? Like in the end, you're going to be with the Lord forever. Who gives a rip what happens here right now? Facts. And bro, that gives me insane, uh, like power, encouragement, um, the ability to execute. Like for me, it's like, Hey man, if this like funding doesn't come through or if this, if this, uh, partnership doesn't happen, like who gives a crap? We're going to be in eternity forever for trillions of years with fullness of joy and all this stuff like yeah it's just not important in light of eternity and so it actually enables me empowers me to do way more now because of that reality and the fact that unbelievers don't have that to tap into i'm like dang that sucks sucks for (laughs) y'all you're just staring you're just staring at the abyss and chewing glass man so anyways wow yeah yeah you were 23 years old making nearly four hundred thousand dollars but you ultimately took the lead because you said that you kind of had hit like a ceiling but for someone who's in that position now right you know maybe they got a little comfortable but they ultimately know that they want to eventually go all in and invest in themselves what's your advice to someone who's in that position and how were you really able to make it happen yeah so so the blessing in disguise was that was a ton of money for me to be able to store up and be the first two years of my salary when building immersed so I was able to build up that nest egg and I think that's good. Um, and fortunately at the same time, I was dude, I was paying 170 bucks a month on rent because I was in a house with 10 dudes, you know, $1,700 a month for the house. Wow. And so like saved a ton of my, I was just like yeah. just saving. I didn't know what I was saving it for, but when I then had to, uh, and, and wanted to take the leap to start my company, I'm like, all right, well I have like a decade's worth of whatever. Like I'm a kid who eats like nothing. And like I, I rent is like nothing. This could last me like 10 years if I needed to. Um, so it was enough to allow me to, um, responsibly take the leap. You know, even if I had, uh, you know, wife and kids and whatever else at the time, like we would have been fine for a few years. And so what I will say is the season of time that you're in right now is not useless. Like there's a reason why you're there. So be grateful for it. Um, but then it's also important to be clever about the ways in which you can leverage that for the next season. Right. So, uh, if someone's working at McDonald's, it's like, they can complain, oh man, I'm making $8 an hour. It's like, at least you have the $8 and, or someone who works at like a computer lab, like, oh man, I'm so bored here. I'm just still sitting here waiting for people to come up to me, ask me questions. Uh, cause they need help with tech support or something, but like no one ever comes up. I'm just bored of my job staring at the wall. Well, why don't you use that time staring at the wall to invest and do something else while you're doing that? And you're getting paid 16 bucks an hour to just sit at the front desk at your college campus or whatever it is for 10 bucks an hour. And so all these little things, there are ways to align incentives and align all these things to point towards your goal. Um, and I just think it's important for people to try a lot of different things uh, to see what you're most passionate about because most things that are worth pursuing are not easy to pursue. And if you're not passionate about that thing, nothing else is going to carry you through that if you're not passionate about it. I mean, same thing with Immerse. Like for me, the core thing that I really, really enjoy is building something that makes lives easier using technology. And had I not had that passion, this thing was way too rough to to build this to date. Uh, And I would probably not be here had I not been passionate about this to begin with. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. great. Cool. Awesome. Well, guys, that wraps up today's episode. Be sure to leave a like and subscribe for some amazing content coming soon. We could not have asked 
for a better first guest to join us on our first episode of our official podcast. But Renji, where can everybody find out more about you and your company? Yeah, just Google Renji Bajoy. Renji, I mean, put it here at the bottom, whatever. Uh, Renji with, it's like Benji with an R. Um, I'm on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn, pretty much all the different social media platforms and YouTube. There we go. Let's <laughs> go. Let's go. Right, yeah. Stay tuned. Episode two coming soon. We got content dropping every single week. Let's go.